So I want you to pretend you have some little kids, maybe you do, uh, maybe you have grandkids, and I want you to think what it would be like if those kids knew that on March 13th the whole family was going to Disney World together. And you've shown them the, the airplane tickets, you've shown them the hotel reservations, you've shown them the special dinners we're going to have with Mickey and Minnie or whatever those special things are and all that stuff. But it's February 25th, is that right? And we have to wait till March 13th. Are you kidding me? And just what that would be like for them. Like, I got to wait two weeks? Oh, my word. Or maybe more re relevant to our passage today, what if you were a little Chinese orphan and you have never met your mom and dad other than that these people from this faraway place called America came to your orphanage and picked you out. And all the papers were signed, and all the government stuff was done, but they had to wait six months until they could literally come and get you. Can you imagine being that little one like, oh my gosh, I, I'm finally going to have a real home and, and a real mom and dad and all that, but I have to wait six months. That's a little bit like what we're going to talk about today. Because in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, Paul talks about that we're already sons, We've seen that in chapter 8, but we're not home yet. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 18. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want to grab one from the chair in front of you, we're going to be on page 944. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is probably, if you would push me, which I know you wouldn't, but if you would push me to the most blessed chapter in the New Testament for a believer, this would be it. In fact, when Jenny and I were married, the pastor that married us encouraged us to memorize Romans chapter 8. And we did. Now that was 34 years ago, and I've only got the beginning and the end still up here. The middle left me. But uh, it is a glorious passage for believers. <clears throat> And he reminds us in these first 17 verses that Josh has preached on in the last few weeks that we're never condemned by God because our sin is gone. We're totally righteous. We have peace with God. That God has given us His Spirit uh, as a seal, as a down payment for the fact that we are really His and we are really going to go home someday. And He empowers us to live the kind of life that God wants us to leave. You do realize that the Christian life, though it's not really that hard to understand in your, in your head, it is absolutely impossible for us to live it. If we're trying to live it on our own, that is. But by God's Spirit, as we've talked about last week, uh, we have the chance, the ability to do what God asks us to do. He says in these previous verses, we're treated like adopted sons, not like slaves. And not only just sons, but we're heirs. We have an inheritance. And someday we have this blessed hope, as we call it in some of the older songs. The blessed hope that when it's done on this earth, we will be with Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit forever. 
And if you look back at verse 17, you will remember that Pastor Josh ended with a quick uh, mention of the sufferings that we may have to go through in this life, especially as sons and daughters of Jesus, that they may come and that we are so identified with him that we'd be willing to suffer for Jesus just like he suffered for us. Well, this week in these next 13 verses, Paul kind of picks up on that theme of suffering and he kind of says two things. First in verses 18 to 25, he says, in light of what is ahead for you guys, the little suffering you're enduring right now is pretty small. Compared with what it's going to be like, man, what we have now is pretty small if we have some sufferings to go through. And then in the last four or five verses, excuse me, 26 to 30, he says, how do we endure that suffering until we get home? And he brings up two things that God has promised us, his Holy Spirit and a guarantee of a life someday that is really going to be great. So let's start reading in verse 18 and let's read to verse 25 in light of what is ahead for us. The stuff that we're enduring now is pretty small. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation is not, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So back to verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time, this life that we're in, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed to us. That's kind of, of a summary of those first verses, 18 to 25. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says the same thing. Basically, he says, you know, with all that we have, as we think about what eternity is going to be like and the blessings of that, all of the crud of this life really is pretty small. And in the USA, we have it pretty easy. Unlike these believers in Rome, we don't have persecution uh, for our faith, at least not yet. I'm a little worried about my children and maybe someday my grandchildren and what they are going to have to put up with. But we have it pretty easy. In fact, Jenny and I uh, were on Facebook uh, yesterday and there was this funny little video that I clicked on from a lady from Haiti who's a friend of ours, and it's called The First World Problems. 
a satire on what do we in the first world, not the third world like Haiti or second world countries in between, but what are the problems for us in the first world? And they had people in terrible poverty with huge smiles on their face saying things like, I hate it when my house is so big that I need two internet routers. I hate it when my cell phone battery goes dead before I get home. And especially for my sweetie, I hate it when I have to ride in a car that doesn't have heated seats. We were joking about that yesterday. And my favorite, I hate it when I tell them no pickles on my burger and it shows up with pickles anyway. I mean, you know, you just think of what we put up with and oh, of our life and it's pretty silly as compared to people around the world. That was a video actually um, trying to get people to uh, get involved with clean water for everyone in this world. So yeah, most of us have it pretty easy. But even if it got bad, and for some of us at times it does, whether it's cancer or bodies that are falling apart, whether it's relationships that have broken that we never thought would break or anything like that, Paul's point is that hardships in following Christ are nothing compared with the glory that we're going to have someday of being with Him. But for now, we wait. And waiting can be hard. I remember last year as we buried my Uncle Dick, who had just come to know Jesus literally two months before he died. I remember talking to Nancy afterwards. And with tears, it was, you know, I know I'm going to see him again. And I know this isn't goodbye forever. And I know it's going to be good. But these next years... And she just burst into tears of how hard it was going to be. You know, being alone, and some of you know that. It is hard to wait, but that's what God asks us to do. And then in verse 19, he goes on to explain that even the creation, not just us, but even the creation in this world is doing the same thing, waiting for the day that God draws the curtain on this earthly existence and we get something new. Verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation's waiting to see who is going to be the ones that go and fly away forever. Who are going to be those who are in the family of God and they're just waiting to see who that is. And why is creation waiting for that? Well, that's what verse 20 and 21 says, that it's because creation is literally, in a kind of a personified way, frustrated with this existence, just like you and I are. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. So in verse 20, you should note that it was God who put the creation kind of in this predicament. Yeah, uh, things aren't what it was supposed to be. I mean, in the garden, just think with Adam and Eve, uh, animals didn't kill each other. 
Weeds didn't grow where they shouldn't grow. Amen. Uh, Things didn't die. And none of that stuff that we look around in the decay, we were talking about our parking lot this morning and the decay of our parking lot or the decay of our, our bodies or the decay of things in this world. None of that was supposed to happen. But God subjected the, the creation to that futility till someday when he is going to make it all new. And we're not sure whether God's going to obliterate what is and redo it, or whether he's going to do a change job on what is his. But in Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, it said that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and creation is waiting until that happens. We typically focus on you know, that we will get some new bodies and in heaven and it'll be different, but the creation around us is in a sense waiting at the same way for this new heavens and this new earth. And then in verse two, 22, he summarizes this idea of creation waiting. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I've never been through the pains of childbirth, but I've watched it four times, and it is not pretty. But Jenny said something about these pains that they are different from any other pain that she's ever had in her life, that she knows when the pain is over, there's going to be a present. There's going to be something. This is not like kidney stones, That, you know, you finally pass the kidney stone and it's gone and oh my gosh, you know, I'm alive again. But we have in childbirth a pain that is severe and significant, but on the other side of that pain, it's going to be good and I'm going to have, Lord willing, a little baby in my arms. And I think Paul uses that on purpose. That yes, this earthly existence has suffering, and yes, it is no fun, and Satan's roaming around, and as the Lord of this earth for a time, he's having his way with people and things. But someday, it is all going to change, and it is going to be worth waiting for. And then Paul makes a subtle switch back to believers from creation in verse 23. And he makes a really interesting statement. He says, verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So first he reminds us that uh, as we're waiting uh, to remember that God has not left us alone, but he's, he's, he's left us with something. He's left us the Holy Spirit to comfort and to guide us. The first fruits in the Old Testament was the very beginning of if you were gleaning a field and, and harvesting a field, you would literally take that first part that you did and give it to the Lord. And similarly, the Holy Spirit is that first deposit in our lives that God has said, I am not going to forget you. I am going to come back and I'm going to get you and you're going to spend forever in heaven. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, 
Christ and God anointed us and set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And as we said at the start today, as we were talking about that little Chinese child waiting, we are already adopted as sons and daughters by God. But the pickup hasn't happened yet. We're not there yet. The, the adoption papers are signed. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We know it's going to happen. But he hasn't come to pick us up yet. And so we're waiting and waiting. And then second in verse 23, it says we groan, waiting for that adoption to be complete, and specifically waiting for these bodies to be redone. Now, Aiden, I know that it's very hard for somebody your age to understand what I'm talking about right now, but when you get old, your body starts falling apart just slowly in all kinds of ways and you wake up one day and you're like, I can't do this anymore. Or if I do, the next day I'm crying in bed and you're just like, what is happening? And then my parents, who are 25 years older than me, laugh at me like, just wait. My mom's favorite thing, whoever said it was the golden years, they're lying. But our bodies literally are falling apart and we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And we don't know exactly what that means, but I kind of think through, think of Jesus' resurrected body. It was recognizable that I think in heaven we're going to recognize each other. But here is a body that could eat fish with the disciples and also walk through walls and just show up. And it's like, how does that work? Well, I'm not sure, but someday we are going to get this incredible glorified body. In Philippians 3, it says, we put our, our citizenship in hev- is in heaven, and we eagerly await from a save, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. And then Paul ends this first section by saying that this wonderful someday existence we long for with that glorified body is a certain hope. It's not something we can see, though. Verse 24 For in this, in all this, we're waiting for. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope is not, is that is not, now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And you know, this hope in the Bible often is not the, it's not the word that we typically use. You know, you know, you go and you, and you're, you know, you're playing cards, and I hope I get you know, the queen of spades. I'm playing spades. I want the queen of spades. I hope I get it. And you have no assurance this is going to happen. But this is a confidence. I have a confident assurance that God has told me it's going to happen, for one. Number two, he's given me his spirit to, to remind me that it is already on the way and I have a confident assurance as I wait patiently for heaven 
that it is all going to happen just the way God said. So the first verses from 18 to 25 are, are kind of the fact of we're waiting. And as we're waiting, we're, we're going to be patient and we're going to suffer if we need to and we're going to hold on to that hope that no matter how bad it gets here, and for us, again, it doesn't really seem that bad, but however bad it gets, it is going to be worth it and it's going to be wonderful. But now Paul changes from that to how are we going to endure this? Kind of, a, I want you to be patient. I want you to know it's going to be great and that forward looking is going to help. But how in the meantime, I mean, I was saved when I was 14 years old. Then let's say I die when I'm 80, you know, for 70 years. How are we going to endure until heaven? And he talks about the Holy Spirit in our life and the guarantee that something better is coming. So let's start with the first bit of help that God's going to give us in verse 26 and 27. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, probably in our waiting in context, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God knows that we're going to be weak. God knows that we need His help. And He says that in the midst of these tough times, He is going to send the Holy Spirit who Jesus said is a comforter and a guide and all that, But Paul makes it clear that while we're going through this with the Holy Spirit's help, he is literally praying for us. In fact, later in the chapter next week, you're going to see that Jesus is praying for us as well. But right now he says the Holy Spirit is praying for you. And what are his prayers like? Well, they're groanings. He's empathetic. He knows what we're going through. He understands. He prays in a way that we may not be able to hear Him, but certainly the Father hears Him. And He prays in accordance with God's will. I know that there have been days that I have literally been laying on my bed praying, and I am so upset about something or so confused about something, I'm just like, I don't even know what to say, God. I don't even know what to ask. It's like no matter which way I ask it, it doesn't sound right, and I'm so confused or I'm so upset or whatever was going on. And it's at those moments I think, yeah, but there's somebody who does know how to pray. There's somebody who is praying for me right now in accordance with the Father's will, and He knows what is best, and He is on my side And he's praying for me. Well, up to this point, it's been pretty easy. Uh, We in creation suffer, but the glory of what's to come is, is worth it, and we can hang in there. 
and the knowledge of how awesome it's going to be someday to spend forever with God in these glorified bodies combined with the fact that we have the Holy Spirit with us helping us and comforting us and praying for us, we are going to get through. But Paul ends this section of encouragement of keeping on with three verses that are a little more controversial. And I actually ran these by by Pastor Josh. Like, I don't want to say kind of how I have interpreted this and you come next week and go, hey, folks, i got to clear up what uh, Mark said here, you know. He said, no, 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 we're on the same page. Go for it. But it is a little bit more controversial. And I want you to remember that whenever we're kind of up against a controversial passage, you're always asking the same question first. What does it mean here in this context? We can talk about other verses that are similar all around the Bible if we want to have a time of discussion about what does this mean in general and stuff. But right now, we're saying, what is God saying in Romans 8 concerning these verses And though verse 28 is probably one of my favorite verses of all the Bible for a Christian, we need to read it in context with the two verses it's associated with. So let me read starting in verse 28. And, not only do we have the Spirit praying for us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So a lot of controversy here in some of the details, but as I looked at verse 28, there immediately just came two questions that popped out. And the first question is, what is the good that Paul's talking about? We know that for those who love good, all things work together for good. What is that good? And then second of all, who is the good promised for? So let's start with the good. First of all, the good that Paul is talking about here is not prosperity theology. Prosperity theology basically says God wants all of his children to ride around in Mercedes and have huge homes, and if you're faithful, God's going to give you all kinds of money and blah, 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 blah. And that's not what Paul is talking about. He's actually, remember context, we're in the midst of waiting. We're in the midst of groaning. We're in the midst of hard times. And in that context, it's really clear that what he's saying is that for a certain group of people, God can work any kind of suffering, groaning, hard time together because he's so sovereign and so able and turn it around for good. And I know that if I gave people a chance right now to stand up and say, let me tell you how God did that in my life, we would be here for a long time. People who have seen awful situations in their life that God has turned by His sovereign power around to have something wonderful 
come out the other end. Pain, suffering, death, it doesn't matter. The, the pain might still be there. The suffering might continue. But through it all, God can turn it around for the best. I think of when Jenny's mom died. We had been married four months as 24 and 25-year-olds, and her mom died of cancer. But in the midst of her death and her funeral, we saw God work in some people's lives in a way that we had never seen before, uh, in those people's lives, that is, and how God touched them through her funeral even. It's like I've, I've been to many funerals before. I've never been to a funeral where people were crying and celebrating at the same time. How does that work? And we're like, let me tell you. And we were able to give a testimony to her faith and, and to God's faithfulness in her life. And then there's little things in this world of, of growing more to be like Jesus when we're having hard times physically or in relationships. And, and we can go to God and we can say, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know you do and you are able to turn it around to make it so that it's going to have a good ending. That's what sovereignty is all about. My God is so big it doesn't matter what the situation. He can work it out for good. And then who is that promise for? Well, it says, for those who love God and then for those who are called according to His purpose. So when I first read this when I was younger, I thought, so we have a double condition on this promise. If you're going to get God to be sovereign in your life and work out things together for good, you have to really love God and you got to be really doing what God wants you to do. Now, I didn't stop to think, well, how much is enough? How much, how much do you got to love God? How much of God's will has to be in your heart and I want it and stuff like that? But I don't think that's what it means at all. Because if you go back to the verses before, I think what he's saying is for all believers who have the Holy Spirit, who are getting through to the end, who are waiting patiently, all believers are called to Him. And so now he's explaining what that call is all about. So what basically Paul is doing in these phrases is describing all saved people who have the sovereign God who are able to ex take what is going on in our lives and turn it around and be sovereign for them. Well, the first phrase is pretty easy to understand, but we need some help in, as we move on. Because the 4 of verse 29 um, is explaining the promise of 28. So we know that God causes all things to work together for her good for those who, who love Him, who are called by Him into His family. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. And 
order that we might be firstborn amongst many brethren. And then he keeps going on, and you'll notice in verse 30, he gets back to the called. So if you put the called in 28, who are they? They are the people that God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. So there's this hierarchy of explaining in verse 28. Who is this called person? It's a Christian that God has done all these things in their life. But let's look at them one at a time to make sure that we kind of understand. And the very first one in verse 29 is the most controversial one. And I'm glad we can start with that and kind of get it out of the way. And then we'll move on. It says, for those that God foreknew. Well, this word is a kind of a simple compound word that means I knew something beforehand. And if we were talking about you and me, and in the Scriptures it does this, it uses this word when it's talking about a person, it's easy. That literally that person knew something before it happened. The problem is, how does that word work with a God who knows everything before it happens? How do you have that God foreknew something when we know that God knows the beginning from the end before it all happens? So what does that mean when God is the subject? Does it mean something different? Some scholars have said they think, as they look at this word and put it in the Old Testament and all this, that it has something more to mean this covenantal or intimate relationship that he ha than he has with certain people. Other times it's used uh, for God. In the New Testament, there seems to be an obvious flavor that means that God knew something ahead of time, but that what He knew is that He chose something to happen ahead of time. So again, depending on how you understand God knowing, it could either be that God foreknew that believers in that He saw beforehand who would trust Him, and so He knew that they would trust Him, or you could say that foreknow means that God chose who would trust Him. And again, if you were just using this word, you could kind of see it either way. Or luckily for us, the next four aren't quite as hard. So the second one, those He foreknew, He predestined. Another word that means decided upon beforehand. If something is predestined, it has been decided beforehand that it is going to happen. If you think back in the Old Testament, before Jacob and Esau, Romans chapter 9, we'll see, it says that before they were even born, God chose Jacob over Esau. That was a predestined thing. God wasn't waiting for something to happen. He wasn't kind of checking the boys out until they're 12 years old or something, but there was something that he had chosen beforehand. And this time, what he has chosen beforehand and decided beforehand is spelled out. It's to be conformed to the likeness and the image of his son. 
to be like Jesus. And remember, in context, that's something that the Holy Spirit in this whole chapter is helping us. Remember chapter 7? What a wretched man that I am. I can't do what I want to do. And the Holy Spirit is offered to be the one that can help us to become like Jesus. And why is that so important, that we become like Jesus? So that we might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. In other words, Jesus was glorified first, and then we someday will be glorified along with him and in the whole family together. So he foreknew and he predestined, and those he predestined, he also called. So what does it mean that he calls believers? Again, back to verse 28. That's the connection there. What does that mean? It, it could mean that God calls all people to himself, and then some respond. That would be a little bit like me and my dog. I call Zoe, and sometimes she responds. Sometimes she doesn't. If there's a bird in the backyard, she ignores my call, and uh, nothing happens. At other times, I call Zoe, and she comes running. So that's what it could mean. Uh, but because of the way, or and it fits in with these next things that we're talking about and in the context here, it's most likely that God has made a call like Jesus did with Lazarus. Remember when Jesus said, you know, Lazarus, come forth. I mean, were we all waiting to see whether he was really going to come or not? No, it was like, dude, now, and he comes out. And there wasn't really a question of whether he was going to respond to that call. Some theologians call this an effectual call, meaning that when God calls somebody, they always respond. They will respond. And so God has called, and those whom he called will respond. And those he called, he also justified. That's an easy one. Justified means kind of that judicial hammer coming down in the courtroom of God. Not guilty. I will treat you, and this is how I remember what justified means, just as if I'd never sinned. So God says those whom he has called, his, his family, he has justified them, he has made them right judiciously in the courtroom of God. And when a person puts their faith in Christ as Savior, God now treats them just as if they had never sinned. And then last but not least, he says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This one's a little different because we think of glorification. He should have said he will glorify. But he says he already has glorified, that it's kind of like even though the adoption papers are written and we're waiting to, to go. It's like God's already done it. It's so sure in our hearts and in our lives. God has glorified us. It is a sure thing. So what's the point of these five verses uh, and trying 
excuse me, these five things that God's doing in verse 29 and 30? Well, it's to remind us that even though we are going through pain and suffering, and even though we're having a hard time as we have to wait until we get to heaven, because God has called us according to His purpose, and He's justified us, and He's glorified us, and we are His children. So which is the best option for pre-no and, and predestined and all that? You'll have to make that decision. I'd love you to wait until we're done with Romans 9 because in Romans 9, he actually kind of brings this whole issue of God predestining things to happen. And in our American hearts, we don't like it to think that God chooses. And wait a minute, I thought I get to choose and all of that. But I would think the best is this, that God in his sovereign will he knows who will choose salvation before the foundation of the world. He has chosen those who are going to be in his family. And he predestines them to be like his son. His will is for the ones he chooses to be like Jesus. And he calls them to himself, and then they respond by trusting in Christ. And they are justified, and they are glorified. But Pastor Josh and I realize there are those, even good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who see this a little different, and we're not going to argue about it, but we just think that's the best way in context of handling these verses. And I honestly, I think that it's one of those mysteries. Nobody's arguing about how a person comes to know Jesus says, excuse me, nobody is arguing about how you get to heaven. It's through faith in Jesus Christ and we get that gracious gift given to us and whether we decide to trust Christ or not is whether we go to heaven. The question here is, how did that happen? What was the process that happened to bring a person to the place in their life when they say, oh, I need a Savior, and they call out to Jesus. When I was 14 years old, if you would have asked me, so Mark, what happened to bring you to Jesus? I would have said to you, well, I finally realized I needed a Savior at a, at a concert one night at a church, and God opened up my eyes, and, and I realized it, and I called out to Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. These verses would say that God made a call on my life before I even understood what was going on, and he had planned for me to be in his family. He had planned for those of you who have trusted Christ to be in his family. So what do we do with these glorious truths in the middle of chapter 8? I'm waiting. And while I'm waiting, I can think of I've got an incredible home in heaven that is going to be so wonderful. But the waiting is hard. But while I'm waiting, God has reminded me that the Holy Spirit is there for me. That's His role is to come alongside me and help me and, and, and get me through. And He's literally praying for me every day and especially in those days when I don't even know how 
to pray. And, and someday, man, this body that's falling apart is going to get renewed and I'm going to get a new body that's going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. The papers are filled out. It's a done deal. But i got to wait. Well, sometimes... Sometimes the Bible is telling us something and we're supposed to do something with it. You know, it gives us an exhortation to, you know, go and feed the hungry. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go feed the hungry. What does God want us to do with what he's told us today? And in my mind, it's really to bask in the glory of what he has told us is going to happen. I can't prove it to you. I can't do anything other than to show you that God's Word says it is true. But for us believers to bask in the glory of the fact that someday it is going to be so good and that it doesn't matter how bad it gets down here, and Lord willing, it will not get that bad, but if the Lord in our life individually or in the life of our nation would allow that, in comparison to what it's going to be like it is going to be okay. And in the meantime, He has given us His Holy Spirit to get us through and to pray for us and to remind us you are in the family. It's just a matter of time until He comes back to get you. Let's pray.